First Corinthians, we'll do part three of the book. It's been actually a few weeks, really six weeks, since we were in this book. <clears throat> so let's do a, a brief recap. So six weeks ago, we started this book going over the intro, right? And rather than just breezing through the intro, what we would see as Paul's standard greeting, okay, we actually looked at the significance of the words behind being what was said. That, uh, you know, it's very easy. Most of Paul's letters, the greetings are very, are, are very similar, right? But <clears throat> it's best for us to look at this book like it's the only book we've ever read, like with those lens, okay? And, and I mentioned that both books, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, are going to be very corrective in nature, right? We gave the background of the city, and we learned that it's very similar to us, that this city was extremely immoral, so immoral that even within the secular world around them, they were looked upon as extremely immoral. But that's what makes Paul's greeting so important. He was writing to them as true saints who were set apart from God. Verse 2, we read of this. So he's writing to a real church. As we know, all the, the epistles are written to a real church, but we need to understand that through that lens because sometimes we think that he's just writing generally to people, and he's not. He's writing to a true church set apart by the Holy Spirit, by the Father who are sanctified. And as screwed up as they were in many areas, they actually had a good reputation of faithfulness, namely to the truth of the gospel. So they had a lot of issues, but verse 6 says that, listen, they had a very good reputation. They were not afraid to be identified with Jesus, which is definitely noteworthy. They, we also learn in verses 5 and in verse 7 that they were not lacking in any gift. And therefore, the testimony of their faithfulness was quite, quite present. And in spite of their problems, and I think we can relate to this, sometimes you have to ask in spite of our problems, but in spite of their problems, Paul believed that they were God's chosen and that he would confirm them to the end. He ends that first section for that first week, verse 8 and 9, I'll just read them. He says that he would confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are blameless because of the righteousness of Christ that is upon them. Verse 9, God is faithful to whom you were called into the fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I know my voice is still a little off, so bear with me. <coughs> but then we did week 2, right? And in verse 10, we began the next section. And in verse 10, he begins to correct them. And the first thing he addresses is their division. This was a church that was divided, right? And Proverbs reminds us that division, one who sows discord amongst the brethren, is a, an abomination to God. This is never good for a church to be divided. But it's interesting, if you look at the scripture, their division, probably very similar to the two girls that Paul addressed in Philippians, their division was not because of something that was doctrinal, but rather it had to do with preference of people, namely the teachers that taught them. And then as a result, factions and sects were being formed to the extent that some were saying that they were of Paul, I follow Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, and then finally, I am of Christ. And even those who he's saying, I am of Christ, he's, he's not applauding them. He's putting them all into the same category, right? That this is no good. 
And by doing this, by saying what they were saying, they were actually discrediting the other anointed teachers and discrediting the work of the Spirit, including those who were saying that they were of Christ. So Paul plainly says in verse 13, is Christ divided? And using himself as one of the object lessons, he asked them, was he, Paul, crucified for you? Or were you baptized in his name? Now that had to really hit hard for them because they loved Jesus. They knew that they were followers of Jesus. They knew that it wasn't uh, Paul who, who was crucified for them. He says that, right? He knew, he, in verse, he knew that, <clears throat> I'm sorry, bear with me. They knew that they weren't baptized into his name. So again, not good. We know that Paul wasn't crucified for them, and we know that they were baptized only in Jesus' name, and it was in Jesus, it was Jesus that they were identified with. So when Paul's calling them out here, it had to hurt. And then we ended that section with verse 17, and it's a good launching point for today as well. Verse 17 says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Again, Paul here talks about his primary purpose of proclaiming the gospel, which exalts only one man, right? That is the man Jesus Christ. There's no room for anyone else in the gospel, in the cross. The cross is all about the one who died on the cross, Jesus Christ. And because of this, he made sure they didn't use wisdom of words, what it says here, or eloquent wisdom, right? This has to do with philosophical ideas or very fancy speech, things that were very highly esteemed in the Greek culture that was around them. He made sure that he didn't do that. And Paul did this. Because if he was to do that, all it would do would just take away from the power of the cross, which needs no help, right? It doesn't need any help. The power of preaching, the power of teaching, isn't in fancy words or being philosophical. There's a place in certain categories for that. But the power of preaching and teaching is in the accuracy of the message. That's really the labor of the person who's teaching or preaching, is to make sure that they are preaching the Word of God accurately, and that is where the power is at. The cross, the gospel, God's Word doesn't need any help by mankind. It's a supernatural Word. Amen? So today, originally I was going to finish it, but I'm just going to focus on one verse. One verse, and that is verse 18. So, let me read it, and then we'll ask the Lord for His help. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we seek You this morning. We ask that you would strengthen us, strengthen our minds, Lord God, to be able to understand the beauty of your word, to really embrace this verse. This verse has so much awesomeness in it, Lord God. And I pray that we would not miss it. I pray that we would leave here with an understanding of how 
extremely blessed we are as your people to be able to understand your word, to be able to understand the message of the cross, the very message, the very reality that saved us and made us who we are here in you. So I pray, Lord God, for today that we would just be encouraged by your word and challenged, Lord God, to respond in a way that, of course, is worthy. And as we'll get into today, Lord God, that's going to look different for all of us, and yet, in another sense, the same. So, Father, help us, I pray, and give us strength from the Spirit who is the teacher and the one who gives us understanding. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, he shifts verse 17 to verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So in this verse, he begins this next verse with the conjunction for, gar in the Greek. And most of the time, for is used more as a preposition. But in this case, it is a conjunction. For, for is equivalent to because, right? So he doesn't need to speak with fancy, eloquent, and philosophical speech to persuade people to believe because there will only be two responses to the message of the cross. If you look very closely, we're going to see what these two responses are. The first is foolishness. Namely, to those who are perishing. And the second is the power of God, in particular, to those who are being saved. Right? So let's look first at foolishness to those who are perishing. This means that the message is absolutely, positively absurd and ridiculous to those who are perishing. This great thing that unites us, which brings us together here as a church, who we uphold, who we praise, this King Jesus, right? And all that He has done is an absurdity to those who are perishing. Now those who are perishing, again, are those who are lost and have not been saved yet, and I'm saying it this way for a reason, and those who are reprobate, which means that they will never be saved. I'm saying that first part, and there's more emphasis on that, that latter part, but we know that there's been many people that are believers, they get saved later in life, and they heard the message of the cross, and again, it was ridiculous for year upon year upon year, and then all of a sudden, their, their timing came. God opened their eyes, and it made sense to them, right? So, perishing means to become destroyed. It doesn't mean that they are going to be destroyed, though they are going to be but that they are currently in the process of being destroyed as of now. In Genesis, the Lord said to Adam and Eve concerning the fruit, said, in the day that you eat of it, you will what? You will surely die. And the proper rendering of that is dying you shall die. We know that they didn't die physically just yet, though they began that process. Yeah. And we know that immediately they were spiritually dead. The only hope for them to really be right is if they're going to be a part of that remnant, right? John 3, some verses to help us understanding this. Um, John 3.18 says, He who believes in Him 
is not judged or condemned, some of your versions might say. Same word. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the only hope for being on the other side is believing. And the only ones who can believe are who? The chosen, right? Verse 19 of John. It says, this is the judgment. I like how he says it here. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world. But what's the problem here? And men loved darkness rather than light. For their deeds were evil. That is the ultimate judgment. This is the curse of sin. Unless God steps in, this is the reality. Right? John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son, and there is two different words here, even though obey is synonymous with believe again, says will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It remains on him because they are perishing. Right? And because they are perishing, the message of the cross is, in fact, foolishness. Why? Because all they have is a nature that is corrupt. This is their judgment. And if it is corrupt by nature, think about this just for a second. If it is corrupt by nature, this means that their thinking, their understanding, their actions are going to be based on this corrupt nature. Amen? This is the reality. And we know that anything good comes from who? Comes from God. And anything that is unrighteous comes from that which has fallen due to sin. Whether it be in the angelic realm or with mankind. But unrighteousness, which stems from this fallen nature, does not see and will not see that which is good as it really, really, truly is. Now, we can look at mankind and they can understand and grasp maybe what is good, but they can't see it as it really is, but actually, quite the contrary. And We live in a, a, a period right now that what is good is considered evil and what is evil is considered good, right? Again, it's amazing. We look at the, we think it is a political thing, more so than ever. It's for people to say that it's not about, it's not about, and we look at the different parties and we say, well, it's not only about that. Well, actually, it really is. If you're watching these commercials, all you see is commercials condemning these particular ones that are for the Supreme Court decision. Wow. Who are for life. And they're making them as evil. Mm-hmm. Saying that they're an extremist. But why do they think this way? Because this is part of their nature. It's part of their nature. They are doing what they can only do. It's what comes from within. Right? So that's the first way that we look at it. Foolishness. And then the other one, as we said, is the power of God to us who are being saved. Now this is what unites us. This is more for us now, so let's look at this. If we look at the word being used for power, I like it. It's the word dynamis. It's where we get the word dynamite from, right? And we know dynamite is an explosive It's a very powerful explosive for what it is, right? It's used in mining and it's used in a lot of different areas and has the ability to do things quicker that something else couldn't do in such an immediate time. 
And what is really behind the meaning of this word is the meaning behind the word ability. The word ability. So the power of God is synonymous with the ability of God. Just think of the doctrine of total depravity for a moment. It's actually a very misunderstood doctrine, believe it or not, by especially those who don't agree with it. They associate it with those Calvinists and they don't like that. Right? But total depravity, all depravity means is morally corrupt. It means morally corrupt. It doesn't mean... So a lot of people have a problem with, they'll say, we don't believe in total depravity because man is not as bad as they can be. They're not. Like I said, man is as bad off as they can be because we are morally corrupt. The natural man, in all his faculties, is morally corrupt. And because man is morally corrupt, he has the incapacity or inability to do genuine good. And they put that word genuine there for a reason. If we can go back to what Sean taught when he taught on good works. Right, brother? Right? And we talked about, you know, how, how man can't do any good. And it, it, it looks like, well, we know mankind does do good things. They absolutely do. If someone doesn't murder, we would say that's good. If someone tells the truth, we would say that is good. And it is. But mankind... has the inability to do genuine good because genuine goodness is doing it with, for the purpose of bringing honor and glory to the king. Right? That is the true purpose behind a good work. This is to the glory of the God of all gods. Right? Not because this is going to be good for me or it's the right thing to do. Yes, it's the right thing to do, but genuine good is because it honors and brings honor and glory to the God who declares things to be good. So I want to read a text that I have often, often read, not because I'm obsessed with it, okay, but because it is often fitting for wherever we are at in the Scriptures. right? But before I read it, I want us to read this through the right lens. okay? I want us to read it through the lens of what and who we are now in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing, is it not? We, if we are in Christ, we are what? We are a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. So if we're reading this, we need to read it through those lens. Because as we will see when we read this verse, and maybe you know where I'm going to go, we can read this with no hope. We can read it as a, as a downer rather than reading it as people who have absolute hope, absolute confidence, rather than reading it as an upper, because we should read all Scripture as an upper. When we come here, we should be built up, right? We can read it as defeated, and we don't want to read that as defeated, or we can read it as victorious. So I want us to look at it in that mindset, and... We ought to also read it through the lens of another verse. This is not the verse that we're going to go to, of John chapter 15, namely verses 4 and 5. So I'm going to read John 15, verse 4 and 5, and we need to keep this in the back burner of our minds as well. The scripture says this in John 15, verse 4 and 5. Jesus is speaking, remember, he's speaking to his 
disciples. It says, Abide in me, and I in you. If he's speaking to his disciples, who is he speaking to as well? Who is he speaking to? Huh? Believers, right? So important. Were there unbelievers in a mix? Yes. But he's speaking to believers. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch, who they are, cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine who he is. Right? So neither can you unless you abide in me. He's talking to a, a new creation in Christ Jesus. And yet he's reminding them of something very, very true. You cannot bear fruit unless you abide in me. And then in verse 5, he says, I am the vine. Again, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. But then he says something very important. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. He's talking again to new creations in Christ Jesus. Who have been redeemed, who have his righteousness. He says, you can do nothing apart from me. So keep that in mind when we read Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. You guys can turn there if you want to follow along. Romans 3, verse 10 to 18. And the reason why I'm bringing these verses, which shows us about the condition of man, is to see how awesome we have it as the church. Romans 3, read along with me. As it is written, there is none righteous. Are you sure there's not one? He says, no, not even one. So this is important. We talk about man can't do any genuine good. And when, when God talks about goodness and things like that, it's always the trueness of what really is good. Genuine goodness. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So that means that there is not a single person that exists that is righteous. Not even one, except for the God-man, Jesus Christ. We know that. It says, there is none who understands. Understands what? The things of God. Understands His Word, nonetheless. Understands the reality of what is going on in this whole picture of life, we can say. Right? There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Yet Jesus said, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Is there a contradiction here? There's no contradictions in Scripture. This stands true. If anyone seeks God, what happened? Huh? God, God sought them out first. Right? They will be saved. And they will be saved, absolutely, because God chose them. So there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless or unprofitable. There is none who does good, in case we didn't forget. It says there is none who does good. There is not even one. Now we just said, mankind does good things. But we have to look at this as genuine good. And even if they do do good, we need to realize God's common grace in His hand that is upon the world. His restraining hand and His hand that just does what He does. If God was out of the picture, it would be complete and utter chaos. We saw that in the Old Testament, the whole world was destroyed. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was always evil continually, right? That's the reality of, of, the, uh, of the curse. Verse 13. Their throat 
is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Man, are we not seeing that right now with those who are just... Someone mentioned something in California. That's news to me. And apparently, did I hear that right in prayer? That now someone's out of, it's out of the womb up to a certain amount. Now we knew that, I knew that there was people from Harvard years ago that were advocates for this. They have up to the first year to kill the baby. That's how insane this is. It says, destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear the fact that their lives are in His hands. They don't have a reverence for who He is. And they don't stand in awe as they look up and declare and how the heavens declare the glory of God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Go ahead, DJ. Uh, small thing. Yeah. In the beginning it said, all have they have all... I've got to go back to it. First of all, all have turned aside? They have all turned aside and then it says, they together... The words Happy. aren't wasted. Did you happen to know why that's there? Together, they it's together. all of them because it sounds like there's a there's like some kind of communication conspiracy type of thing maybe. I mean, mankind together, all of them, oh. has the same purpose. They're children. Listen, they hate God. They do not worship God. Right? They have their own agendas. Um, that makes it sound like it's a collective of so, of some sort. What do you mean, a collective? Like it's a general statement. I think it is a general statement. I think together, mankind, again, they do not seek God. They've turned aside. They've become useless. All their endeavors are going to be useless. It's not going to have any spiritual good. certainly not going to lead to spiritual life. They're dead. I think it's a whole conglomeration of things. Yeah, I think of the Tower of Babel in that. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point. No, I agree. That's together. Yeah, sure. That's that's how I was thinking of it. Yeah. Same idea. Amen. So, going back to the latter part of verse 18, which has to do with us. That the power of God to those who believe. This message. We understand this message. That's why we're here this morning, right? Power, again, being synonymous with ability. It is only God who is able to make someone see the power of the cross. When I think about, I'm sure we have people that we minister to, right? That we, maybe God made an opportunity in our lives to, to preach the good news to them or something like that, and they just don't get it. Because you're not able to convince them. No one is. They're only going to get it if God makes them get it. It's very simple, right? So unlike God who is able, mankind is unable. So the cross is a demonstration of God who alone has the ability to save fallen people. That's what we embrace here this morning. And it is interesting to note that those who went to the cross go back to this context here of when Roman crucifixion exists, right? That those who went to the cross were the lowest criminals in society. So the perfect righteous God-man was looked upon as the lowest of all criminals. Not every crime led to a cross back in the Roman law, but the truly heinous crimes led 
to the criminal being crucified. And this is why the world thinks the message is absolutely ridiculous. You're saying this guy is God and yet he's going to the cross. Something's not right here. Now next week we'll examine this a little closer, but I want us to see the blessing which will lead, I believe, I know as a matter of fact, to multiple areas of application if we're really understanding this. And the reason that I say multiple areas of application is because we are multiple people here in this room, but the church, universal, wherever they are. Again, I believe, I was talking about this with Joey a little bit on our car, car ride home from, from work, I believe that the church's application to God's truth is both general or universal and personal or particular. And the reason why I say that, I'm going to explain. Hopefully you understand. Application is simply the action of putting something into operation. Right? That's what it means when we talk about application. So I'm going to use a verse as a, a good base verse. Another one of my favorites. I say it all the time. It's such an awesome verse if we really look at it. Micah 6.8. You know, I love this verse. It says this. He has told you, O man, what is good. He being God. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So let's look at this. To do justice, or to do justly, as a, the New King James says, I like that actually better, simply means do that which is right. Justice is righteousness. Okay? Just means right. Very simple, right? So God has shown us what to do. He's telling us first, do that which is right. So how do we do this? We'll say, if you guys are listening to me, and you know I bring this up all the time, and I'll never stop bringing it up because it's so important. We know what doing right is by obeying what? I want you guys to be specific. By obeying what? I'll give you a hint. The Holy Spirit. How many fingers do I have up? Ten Thank you. The Ten Commandments. Because in doing that, by us obeying the Ten Commandments, we are both loving God with all our being and loving people created in His image that He has called us to love with all of our being. This is both the requirement for those who are perishing and those who are being saved. It doesn't change. We are not lawless because we're believers anymore. The law didn't save us. Not saying that. But we were definitely saved. Now we can say to it. Now we can actually obey. It doesn't. If sin. Are we to sin? No. And what is sin? Any, any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. The moral law. The Ten Commandments. So the first, those who look at the cross as foolishness, they can't do it at all. Genuinely. Right? And the latter, which is us, can do it, but will not do it perfectly and can only do it under His power, which we just read in John 15. Right? Then it says here, so to do what is right, and doing what is right is to obeying His moral law, the law written in the hearts of all human beings since time began. Then it says to love kindness or mercy. We are to love the very thing that was given to us, again, when we did not deserve it. Remember where Romans says that it is the kindness of God that led us to salvation. It, his kindness has to do with mercy and grace. 
If we didn't receive this wonderful kindness from God, we would be those who look at this message as foolishness. We wouldn't be in this room. So what was given to us, should we not give the same to others? Now, obviously we can't save others. You know what I'm talking about. We've received much from the Lord. We should give back. That means we should be kind to others. We should be gracious and merciful to others because we receive the ultimate in our salvation. So because this, which is what was given to us, we ought to walk humbly with our God, having a right understanding of ourselves. How could we respond in any other way and be sane? This is Romans again, 12. Essentially, never forget your natural frame and what has been given to you. Now let's look at our verse in the general, universal sense. For the word of the cross, going back to 1 Corinthians, our, our verse. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. There is nothing more precious than our salvation and being able to understand the way, the truth, and the life as expressed in John 14, 6. The message of the cross is incomprehensible to the world and yet we, a very, very small portion, understand it. Think about how beautiful that is. Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, I mean, I was going to read the whole beginning, but I'm just going to read verses 11 to 13. It says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at, this, at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This was once us, right? Early in the chapter says you were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse, eight, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near, amen, by the blood of Christ. So this is what God did, right? This is what God did. Now let's think of the, the general, what I just said, the general universal sense of how we apply this. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's what is sane. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is the, how we... Listen, application is obeying what He says. So that's the general way that we understand this. And if the message of Christ mostly falls on deaf ears, and you have ears to hear, we have ears to hear, how dare we not respond back accordingly? Right? He's given us this. Should we not give our lives to Him as an offering, a sacrifice? 
But I also said that the application is personal in particular, which is really the more important one. We're all individuals. We're all individuals. The same verses apply here, so I'm not going to read them over. But how that is fleshed out may be different. Just think of your own personal lives for a second. We all have our own context in this life, right? We all have our own struggles with sin, with whatever it is in our life, people in our life, whatever. We all have our own scenarios <coughs> sorry, and situations, family, friends, work, church, whatever. There are multiple areas of application because we are multiple people and endless situations and battles. Now, I can't tell you what you must as far as fleshing out the texts that we just read. But you must search your own heart. So you've got to think of what I just said. The general will of God is, how do we apply this? Okay, well, God says this. There's two ways to respond to the knowledge of God. Every time we open the Word of God, we can receive knowledge. You can respond in foolishness or we can respond in wisdom. Rightly applying this is I need to be wise if God tells me this and to do this I'm going to do it. But what does it look like if I'm to love someone? He has shown you a man what to do but what, and what does the Lord require you but to do justly. I have to do what is right. So in my situation what is right in this particular situation? You guys know your own situations. It might be different than mine. You guys know, what is kindness in this? What is the kind thing to do in this unique situation that is for me and me alone at this moment? You've got to search your own hearts. I know that on a daily basis, I am or will be confronted with something, especially at work. And I know these verses as well. And in those moments, I have to make a decision to choose whom I will serve. Who is my master? Will it be Mike? And his natural impulses. And I can assure you that my natural impulses are not godly. You wouldn't even want to talk to me. Or will it be the supernatural reaction that comes from a mind stayed on him and comes from abiding in Christ my Lord. And the fruit that comes from the Spirit of God that dwells in me. But that dwells in each and every one of us. So how do we apply it? Well, guess what? I don't know your situations. You know your situations. You need to search your heart. Search the scriptures. We already read these scriptures. These were the scriptures that the God ordained for us to look at this Sunday school class, right? Now, what you do with it is what you do with it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Any questions? Any comments? You have a little time. No? We're good. All right. Well, I'm going to close in prayer. It gives us a few extra minutes to go back into uh, the sanctuary. And let's prepare our hearts for worship. And Lord... I thank you so much for your word, for the comfort that it brings us. And Lord God, yet there's a real reality. Every time we open your word, 
you know, well, we understand it and we thank you that, Lord God, the majority of the world, this is foolishness to them. And yet we get it. How amazing is that? How wonderful is that? That we have the mind of Christ because you've opened up our eyes. You've made us your own. Father, what an amazing God you are. What an amazing Lord we have. What an amazing helper we have in the Holy Spirit. So Father, I pray through Jesus, under the power of your Spirit, that you would give us the strength this day, the remainder of this day, this morning, this Lord's Day, a unique day from the rest of the week, because we're in front of each other, worshiping you together, that your Spirit would help us to worship you rightly, help us to love you, and be the very vessels that you've called us to be. So we thank you. We are indebted to you our whole lives. Help us to be able to do that. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.